Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Robin is a first name that I feel like we need more of. I agree. I'm surprised it's not more popular because it's like genderless. I, I blame Christopher Nolan for creating a Robinless Batman. Mm. I find that chronologically suspect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> maybe we should maybe we should actually bring this into the discussion. As well. Good news, we're recording. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. I am joined today by regular co-host, Dara Lind. Hello, I am regular co-host. And Washington Post columnist, Christine Emba. Hello, I am an irregular (laughs) (laughs) co-host. Christine is also, in addition to being an irregular co-host of The Weeds, the author of Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, which is available now wherever books are sold. Uh, We're going to be talking a bit about her book in our white paper segment, which is on related topics. For the next half hour or so, though, our thoughts on sex will remain relatively unrethought, and we are are instead going to rethink what's happening with the American safety net. Uh, As is my want, I'm going to try to lay out a little bit of background first, and then we'll we'll dive into it. So in a series of laws, uh, most notably the 2020 CARES Act uh, and the 2021 American Rescue Plan, uh, the United States reacted to the COVID pandemic by dramatically expanding its social safety net. Three rounds of stimulus checks totaling $3,200 per person went out. Unemployment insurance was boosted across the board by $600 a week, then $300 a week, meaning for a lot of newly out-of-work people, UI was paying more than their old job did. Food stamps, Medicaid, Obamacare subsidies were all boosted. And a monthly child tax credit available to the poorest families was implemented for the very first time in American history. Right now, though, and this is why we're doing this episode, We're going through a kind of great expiration. So after temporarily expiring in 2020, the bonus UI payments went away for good in June 2021 in red states and a few months later everywhere else. The child tax credit, in spite of dramatic valiant efforts by Democrats who are not named Joe Manchin to extend it, appears to be dead due to Democrats named Joe Manchin. And the food stamp and Medicaid boosts are very contingent. They are tied to the COVID public health emergency And that's currently set to expire on April 15th, though uh, it's been extended many times and and could be extended again. So the child credit change has been especially striking as, by some measures, it's resulted in in a very sudden and massive surge in child poverty. There was an estimate from the Columbia Center on Poverty and Social Policy that estimated that 3.4 million more children were in poverty in February than were in December And that's basically just because of the the child tax credit expiring. So, Christine, since we have you here, you've written a bit about some issues related to the child credit. You you wrote a great piece on falling fertility and how that relates to to lack of support for families. What do you make of of that policy's death? Well, I mean, first, we should just shout out Joe Manchin again and again and again here for, you know, plunging nearly four million more kids back into poverty after this program expired. But, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's it's tragic. I think that, you know, these policies, both the child tax credit, extended Medicare, unemployment, all of these provided, you know, almost for the first time, a fundamental welfare state, a positive welfare state in the United States that made it possible for families to survive in a crisis and even thrive. In fact, there was you know, predicted to be a baby bust when COVID started. And that actually happened in the first few months of COVID. But then when these policies went into effect, birth rates and fertility actually rebounded close to levels of before the pandemic, showing that this sort of assistance really helps families and makes them think that they can, you know, survive and even grow. And of course, now that's now that's gone. Yeah, I mean, people who were listening to the weeds back in 2020 will recall, I think, a couple of occasions where we um, 
you know, had to step back and recalibrate our and y'all's expectations about what COVID was doing to the economy. Because while, say, two years ago, like at this point in the year, the assumption was that we were going to be plunged very rapidly into a great recession or greater style economic downturn, that there was going to be this very quick but very complete, you know, wiping out of a bunch of people's sense of economic security. And because Congress actually stepped in through successive, you know, very large emergency funding bills. Uh, by the end of 2020, we were pointing out that not only had they provided a substantial cushion for many of the people who like had lost their jobs during the recession, during the COVID recession, but that like it had actually gone further than that and made some people whole who had been struggling even before the pandemic appeared. And what we're talking about now is, you know, two years into the pandemic and certainly with both the economic problems caused by, you know, the kind of more poorly understood, you know, pre-vaccination level of public health emergency, plus the economic effects of total shutdowns, both being substantially mitigated when we no longer have total shutdowns and also have, like, at least some understanding of what the virus is and what environments are and aren't high risk. But taking taking us back to a time without something that didn't just help the 2020 problem, but also went some way to helping people who had been suffering before. And you know, I, I think that the, the child tax credit is particularly illustrative here, not just because the cause of its demise is so obvious. Like, you may recall that Joe Manchin last year was reported to have said privately that that it wouldn't be good to renew the CTC because families were using it to buy drugs, but also because its impact is so clear. Uh, Dylan's not going to give himself props for this, so I will. Like, the Dylan's Matthews of the world had been writing for years about how expanding the child tax credit was the easiest way to lift families out of poverty and that that was a particularly, you know, big and low-hanging piece of fruit. And to see that actually borne out in the economic numbers after the expansion through 2021 and now borne out in the numbers in early 2022 is a really rare illustration of just how much a single government program can do. Right. I mean, there's also evidence that shows that Joe Manchin, again, was totally wrong when he suspected that, you know, parents would spend it on drugs uh, as if parents don't have an understanding of what their families need. At least one analysis, multiple analyses, but one that I'm looking at right now is the U.S. Census Bureau data by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities found that 91 percent of low-income families use their monthly benefits on basic needs. So they use it to buy food. They use it to buy clothing and school supplies, to pay their utility bills and cover their rent. Like These were the things that families were struggling to do before, like pure survival mechanisms, allowing their kids to go to school and eat food. And I think that was huge. I think it became clear that the U.S. government could actually help families do that in a material way and that, frankly, it wouldn't be that hard. Unfortunately, we've decided that we don't want to do that anymore. Yeah, I think one of the surprising things about all this to me is that is how much like government capacity it suggested the U.S. has. And it's not unlimited. Like if Matt Brunig, the, the grumpy uncle of, of child welfare policy, uh, were here, he would point out that the, the checks were sent out from the IRS. You had to have either filed for taxes or done sort of a non-filer return thing to get them. That in civilized countries in Scandinavia, uh, they just send you money from the social uh, security agency. And that's all true. But I think I had, like, a much more pessimistic view of what the, the federal government could do even when it comes to just handing out money to people. And it turns out they could, like, rise to the occasion pretty quickly. And they were able to use existing programs that were kind of stingy, like Medicaid, and expand them pretty rapidly. Like, the core of, of Medicaid is this thing called FMAP that is just a formula saying how much of the money comes from the federal government and how much comes from the states. And it turns out, we learned during the pandemic, that just adjusting FMAP quickly, like, is possible. And that when you do it, states enroll more people in Medicaid. And it was this, like, very interesting experiment in, in testing out all these levers that had been built up over the years and finding that you could, in fact, pull on them. <laughs> and the federal government would not break when you did it. That's a really good point. Like, the CTC going through the IRS is 
interesting because it is essentially what if we treated social services for the working class and the way we treated social services for the middle class? Like, Weeds listeners are not going to be unfamiliar with the concept of the submerged state and the idea that there is a middle class welfare state, that it's primarily promulgated through the tax code, and that because it's promulgated through the tax code, it's very easy for the middle class families it benefits to pretend that they don't get any benefits from the state at all. So it's, you know, it's interesting to see that, like, well-established and fairly frictionless state capacity be extended to a population that we more conventionally think of as welfare recipients, quote-unquote. But the FMAP example proves that it's not just that we have this well-trained, robust welfare state-making capacity at the IRS, which obviously, like, has big downsides when you're, you know, doing this weird bank shot of we're not going to tell people that we're helping them, but we're helping them anyway— you know, if the FMAP example shows that we also have the ability to use the existing, like, standard welfare providing agencies, those really are a little bit more robust than I think we often assume the, like, post-1996 federal welfare state capacity to be. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting also not just that we prove that these uh, mechanisms can work, but that in some ways the government was forced to stretch and expand them. You know, for all the complaints about how inefficient the IRS non-filer portal was, and it was pretty bad, um, still I think, you know, 8 million families, close to 8 million families ended up using it. Um, So (laughs) it was actually accessible and, you know, with some work that was able to, to change to make it easier to use. I think the government also was forced to innovate in terms of internet accessibility, more languages, making uh, websites mobile accessible, using, you know, sort of voice and other technologies because just so many more people needed it at this time. And usually I think we don't invest in that, unfortunately. (laughs) We kind of wait until the most desperate moment when everything is falling apart and then like, you know, innovate just slightly so that it doesn't fully collapse. But this was sort of a forced push forward, and it it worked for a lot of families. Yeah. it's It's been interesting talking to people. So one, the... The one good person thing I do in my life is that in in spring, I like to do volunteer tax prep for people in D.C. Dylan, Um, you donated a kidney. (laughs) (laughs) The one nice thing I did. That was years ago. Um, I don't have any more body parts to donate. I lost a finger in a freak moped accident, and it didn't even go to anybody. Um, But... Anyway, I it, one one like interesting thing that I've noticed doing it this year is there's all these new questions you have to ask people because of everything that that happened in 2020 and 2021. So you have to ask people about the child tax credit in a way that you didn't have to before because we weren't sending out monthly payments. You have to ask people about when they got their stimulus checks. I've noticed dramatically more complaints about the stimulus checks than about the child tax credit, which has been really interesting to me. Like, people notice when they get the child credit. And, like, often people will either have not noticed that the $1,400 last year went into their bank account. And so we, like, go through their bank account and I point it out and we don't put it on the the, the tax return. Or they, they just didn't get it. And then they have to go through this really annoying IRS process because the IRS thinks they got it and they have to ask for it. This is just anecdotal. So, like, take with a a big pound of salt. But I've never noticed anything like that about the child credit. And, like, my working theory on that is it premiered a little bit later. And so the IRS had, at that point, had experience with three rounds of stimulus payments, had been able to build up some capacity of doing this. And because it was monthly and not just a one-time drop, people were less likely to forget. I'm here in March asking people to remember what happened in March of last year to their bank account. And, like, I don't remember every deposit in my bank account from a year ago, whereas the child credit was, like, very visible and very, like, persistent in their financial lives. A lot of things were happening last month. <laughs> that world, is also true. <laughs> the world was pretty busy. I also think that one of the things that if you talk to and read interviews with people who receive the child tax credit, one of the great things about it actually was its reliability. Usually yeah. the child tax credit appears, you know, once a year. But this move expanded it to around $300 payments monthly. And that gave parents uh, and families some stability in their incomes, especially when— 
you know, unemployment was higher, jobs were in and out because of various waves. You could count on a certain amount of money, which meant that you could actually plan in advance. And of course, tons of research and our common sense shows that when there is some stability (laughs) in your income, in your financial situation, you're able to think long term to things like, you know, enrolling your children in school, to banking away money for future expenses, to paying for daycare in advance, etc. And that, I think, provided a lot of psychological help, like not just, you know, monetary help, but actually psychological help and stability for families across the United States, something that is missing most of the time with our extremely shredded social security or welfare (laughs) safety net. Yeah, I mean, I'd also point out that if you are moralistically concerned with the purposes to which this money is being spent, common sense and evidence both also dictate that if you're just getting it as a single windfall payment that you cannot predict the size of, but that is coming as one lump sum, you are more likely to spend it on things you had previously deemed unnecessary than if you are projecting it as a few hundred dollars a month to add to your monthly budget. Um, But What I'm curious about is because we're not just talking about the like, you know, the expansion of the state, but also it's like contraction now during the Great Mm -hmm. Exploration. Um, You know, I I have a few questions about what this means for our understanding of kind of the politics of the welfare state, but even just kind of talking about the mechanisms that we've been discussing. Like, do we think that the government has retained – is going to be able to retain any muscle memory of what it is to have this expanded capacity, that these innovations that you're talking about, Christine, are going to persist even if they're being delivered at a smaller scale? Or is this just – you know, a, a Camelot thing of like, wow, for a couple of years there, we had a federal government that knew how to do things. I mean, I've been thinking about this a little bit in context of some of the debates about reopening we've seen. Um, there was there was a good Sam Adler Bell profile of, of David Leonhardt, who's sort of taken on the role of like the great reopener. And Sam interviews a lot of like epidemiologists and public health people who are very mad at, at Leonhardt. And Ed Yong had a piece that was did not name Leonhardt, but was a very sort of we're reopening too fast. Um, this is this is all going awry. And kind of an interesting theme in all of those was there were like medical public health disagreements, like first order empirical disagreements, like how important is masking? Does masking have like negative psychosocial effects on on kids that I like don't feel qualified to answer? It seems like the negatives on kids are kind of exaggerated. I don't know. I lean sort of mask sympathetic. But the other thing is just like the field of public health came up through a recognition of dramatic health disparities on the basis of, like, income, race, nationality. And so people in it have a fairly baked-in set of, of left-of-center views on, on economic justice, which I don't think is necessary. Like, different, different academic disciplines have different sort of worldviews, and that's fine. But there's sort of, like, an elegiac quality to these pieces where people are saying – you know, this was our moment. Like, we could have built a great welfare state here the way that, like, Britain built its welfare state out of the Blitz or the first American welfare state was built out of the Great Depression and we kind of lost it, that we we built this all up and it went away just as quickly. And, like, not to psychoanalyze too much, but there did seem to be a bit of a feeling of, like, if we reopen too fast, that's, like, us admitting we lost this moment. And I agree that's really sad, but I also don't know... I don't know if we, like, expected too much of this emergency um, that, like, the reasons the U.S. is not a European welfare state are sundry and and rooted in centuries of history. And I don't know if, if even a catastrophe this bad would have been enough to break us out of it. Yeah, I'm – I don't want to say that I'm – Hopeful. I mean, I'd like to say that I'm hopeful, but I, I wouldn't go that far. But I am noticing um, that the left has gotten excited, obviously, about the potential for better welfare policies like the ones that we experienced over the past two years. And we've also seen segments of the right getting on board. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Marco Rubio, Mitt Romney, even uh, Josh Hawley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Josh have, Hawley was calling for cash payments. It's wild. Right, right. They are now, you know, in some ways at least trying to promote plans that support families, including direct cash payments, including, you know, other sort of less useful arrangements. But they're especially with the rising awareness of falling fertility rates, which seems to concern conservatives um, much more than it does <laughs> anyone else. Um, there is a a new understanding, I think, of the need to support families and also whether for sort of 
libertarian-leaning reasons or, you know, trusting parents with their children to know their family's needs to support policies that allow families to make decisions themselves. And those do include generally just giving people money. So if that energy continues, that could be a good thing. Um, we'll just have to wait for Joe Manchin to retire. <laughs> right. I mean, so this is this is my question about the, the politics of it, because I can understand the argument you're making, Christine, about like a new bipartisan consensus where like the reason that the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit have been like such key lovers of federal anti-poverty policy was this 90s consensus where like everyone agreed tax cuts were good. And if you could do a progressive tax cut so much the better for like kind of the democratic mainstream of the time. And I can understand like, okay, yes, we don't there's a different understanding of how the tax burden should be shared, but there's also a greater communitarian interest in pro-family policy. But the piece that has been missing, or at least that I haven't yet seen, is something that was talked about ad nauseum during the debate over the Affordable Care Act, and you know, which obviously continued long after the enactment of said act. And the argument that was made then was, Welfare state policies are more politically controversial when they are theoretical and when they are being rolled out than they are once they actually exist. Because once they exist, you have created a constituency that benefits from it, that understands that they benefit from it, and that will push for its preservation. And, like, we did see that with the ACA. And I think that that kind of started getting priced into all of this temporary stuff in 2020 where there was, you know, I think Congress at this point understands that some things that they say are temporary will never actually be temporary because you'll just add them to the laundry list of things you renew whenever you pass another appropriations bill. And I think that, you know, Manchin pretty clearly single-handedly killed the CTC, but that doesn't really explain all of the other stuff that has been allowed to sunset in an era where a lot of political analysts kind of understood sunsetting as being a thing that would never actually happen for some of this stuff. And I wonder, I don't know if it's that there isn't a constituency. Like, I keep thinking about the 99ers, which was a group of long-term unemployed folks back during the Great Recession who really self-mobilized and pushed for expansions to long-term unemployment insurance you know, because they understood themselves to be like a particular group of people who would benefit from this policy. And I don't know if it is that there isn't something like that or that, you know, it just doesn't matter as much that people feel that they're losing something or that that's just not as politically salient as a lot of other things. And so anyone who is advocating for it is getting lost in the shuffle. But it does seem to upend our understanding of, you know, how durable a welfare state can be in the political sense. Yeah, I was thinking about this a bit. I think expiration politics and sort of like sunsetting politics works really well on kind of on either elite issues or things where the benefits are so widely shared that you can't allow it to just go away entirely. So old people like me might remember in 2010 and then in 2012, we had these things that were sort of called fiscal cliffs where the Bush tax cuts – in their entirety were going to expire. And then in 2012, there was also going to be all these, like, spending cuts. And those were effective, like, guns to the head of Congress because Bush cut taxes most on rich people, but also for everybody. Like, the bottom tax bracket was 15% when he went into office. He added a 10% bracket. Like, once you start messing with the first bracket, you're cutting everybody's taxes and, like, Obama did not want to preside over a massive tax increase in the middle of a recession on everybody. But similarly, like things that are not really on the public radar but matter a lot to certain interest groups like uh, Medicare reimbursements. For years, we had this thing called the doc fix where uh, in 97, Clinton passed a law that would cut reimbursements to doctors. And the public didn't care about this. Doctors really cared about this. And so they would mobilize every single year to get these repealed. And so they never, ever took effect. And the child credit, I think, was kind of operating on the latter track. There wasn't really, like, a popular grassroots movement for this. Um, I'm going to get emails from people who tried to build one <laughs> being like, no, there was. <laughs> but, like, it, it was not Black Lives Matter. It was not even, like, the Sunrise Movement. It was not ADAPT doing sort of disability politics in people's offices. There was not – I think, like, an honest accounting of why it happened is really elite-driven, mm. um, that this was something that economists, sociologists, social welfare experts who studied the issue really, really wanted. 
that made its way to policymakers. First, Rosa DeLauro, who literally represents Yale and talks to these people all the time, and um, and then then people like Michael Bennett, and that sort of sufficed to push it into to legislation for a year. But you didn't really have an organized constituency around it, and that's fine as long as you don't have an organized or popular backlash to it. But you did, and you had people like Rubio and Lee who've been calling for their own plan to expand the child credit for years, like turning against this really hard because it turns out like giving money to people without work requirements remains incredibly controversial. And I don't know that the coalition was really prepared for that, that that it it was playing, I frankly was playing an elite inside game. And I like viewed my role as like advocating for this thing that I thought could become law just on the power of, of elite consensus. And I think we were really wrong about that. And I mean, I think you also have to to tack back, I guess, a couple minutes into our conversation. Think about the sort of reopening consensus, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of these programs were supportive for families and allowed parents to stay at home with their kids uh, (laughs) or (laughs) provide for their families with, you know, not necessarily two full-time wage earners, but one or one and a half. And at a certain point in the pandemic, as we all know, there was a, a great movement to not let people be at home anymore, (laughs) get them back to work, get everybody back out in public. And so I think that was also an inspiration for trying to sunset some of these policies simply to force the economy back open come hell or high water or starving children, as it turns out. No, it was funny. When I was going through all the programs that expired, I'd forgotten that before even the CARES Act and something called like the Families First During COVID Act in February 2020, we passed like a paid leave provision, mm-hmm. but it was only if you got COVID. <laughs> it was there were no other forms of illness or sickness. It was limited in what employers applied to because most employers had some kind of paid leave provision. And then that expired at the end of 2020 and never came back. And when you read these sort of reopening analyses, that's always the, the first policy they mentioned, which makes sense. Like, tons of people were getting sick. It makes sense to pass sick leave at a time when <laughs> lots of people are getting sick. And we kind of did, but we really didn't. And we certainly didn't for last year and this year when people are still dying. And if you had a model of the U.S. government where it has a kind of reaction function where there's a big problem all of a sudden and people react rationally to try to fix the problem, (laughs) that model did not explain our policies on sick leave very well. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd even argue that People are constantly getting sick all the time, especially children, frankly, who are walking vectors of disease. I have Um, heard. Yeah. And in fact, sometimes people need to stay home and get well so that they can go back to their jobs and not infect other people. And this is not just a COVID problem. But, you know, that maybe that's just speculation <laughs> on my part. Who could say? Man, hearing this is making me reconsider. Like, I, I have had a really strong, like, aversion, maybe even revulsion to the, like, amount of discourse that gets hung up on the concept of returning to normal because mm-hmm. the critics of it are so often like, well, why are we saying normal? Shouldn't we imagine something better <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in lieu of, like, and actually making that the full extent of the intervention rather than actually articulating what, yeah. you know, the better world might look like? And for that matter, not for nothing, the extent to which they believe that the 2020 to 2021 world actually reflected something better than what existed pre-2020, which is implicit in a lot of this, but doesn't often get teased out. And like hearing this, it, it actually does seem like there would be a a version of that that is what if we treated COVID not as like something that categorically different from getting sick and needing to stay home and needing not to send your kids to school where they could infect others? Or what if we treated losing your job in March 2020 because you were working at a hotel as like not that different from losing your job because you were part of a massive wave of layoffs because your company was getting stripped for parts to get repackaged as part of some, you know, hedge fund move. So that does make a certain amount of sense. I just kind of wish that this is the level at which things were happening rather than this very symbolic, well, if we say that we want to go back to normal, then suddenly that's the materially different fact rather than the expiration of these existing policies that helped carry people through what we expected to be a difficult time and that 
you know, from a certain perspective could persist if we assumed that people will be suffering from difficult times whether or not there's a pandemic in the air. Well, I mean, that's also kind of an implication of sort of a broader American philosophy. And that's why this is, I think, difficult for a lot of people to say. I mean, the American sort of understanding right now is this bootstraps thing, right, where you work hard and you survive based on how hard you work. And if something happens to you, If you get sick or if you lose your job, it's probably your fault and you should have done better. We don't need to help you. Or as COVID was kind of a radical sort of reimagining of that because it was happening to everyone and it was clearly not one person's fault. It was just assumed that like there was a frailty to human life that was unexpected and harmed people in surprising ways. And so it was our job to take care of each other. The question is whether we can understand that there are frailties to human life that are no one's fault (laughs) and we should help take care of each other even when the obvious cause is not a pandemic. And I think that will actually take a really big shift in sort of American thinking. And I don't I don't know if we are ready to talk about that or if even policymakers are, you know, plugging that sort of big meta question into their proposals when they talk about it. Yeah, I mean, America is famously a very individualist society. And I mean, it's it's interesting in that, like, that's often used as an explanation for why we don't do more government intervention into things. And I have some, like, kind of technical caveats about that. Um, in some areas, we do, do more regulation and, and intervention than Europe. Like, we have much stricter drug regulations. But in terms of supporting people, I think it holds up. And it definitely, like, in the debate over reopening, there's there's very much an undercurrent of like, what can I be asked to do on behalf of other people? And I sometimes get frustrated with the reopening debate because it's so many individual things, right? Mm-hmm. Like I I deeply sympathize with the Leonhardts on the specific issue of whether we ever go back to Zoom school. Like it seems clear at this point that Zoom school has like denied a year or two of actual education to people in the U.S. and much more to people in poor countries. The Center for Global Development has done some great studies on learning loss in Africa and just like a total lost generation of people without reading and math skills um, because countries were forced to to shut down schools. And so like I am willing to do a lot of things uh, to avoid ever going to remote schooling ever again. But like am I desperate to go back to never wearing masks on the bus? Not really. It's a little annoying, but like Who cares? (laughs) Um, And that issue, like masking specifically in a non-educational context, seems very like, do you have an individualist or or collectivist mindset of like common morality? Do we want to take this opportunity to to pivot to another anti-individualist critique of the uh, status quo of American life? I think we might. Uh, So we're going to take a quick break after that outstanding Dara segue. Uh, But (laughs) when we we come back, we're going to talk about a white paper on the ethic of consent and sexual morality and uh, the perils of individualism in that sphere. So stay with us. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Okay, we're back. So our white paper this week is by Robin West, who's an eminent feminist legal scholar at Georgetown Law, and it's called Consent, Legitimation, and Dysphoria. Christine, you picked this paper out, and it relates to a lot of the themes in your book, uh, Rethinking Sex, and I think you you talk about it a a bit in your book. So could you walk us through the paper and what you got out of it and, and why it became sort of important to your project? 
Sure. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about rethinking sex first. So at the post, I write about ideas in society, and I was writing a lot about the Me Too moment and movement when that happened. And it made it clear that, you know, there were some sexual problems that were, you know, we realized what the problem was. And consent was a big part of that. Like Harvey Weinstein should not lock his underlings into hotel rooms. That is bad. That's rape and assault. Yeah. But it also opened up a lot of gray areas where, you know, consent might have been present, but it wasn't enough to keep sex from being somehow bad. So we had stories like the Aziz Ansari, babe.net thing. We had stories like cat person, where women especially would consent to sex ostensibly. And yet that didn't make it good. The sex was often still, you know, depressing, sad, even traumatic in some cases. And we didn't seem to have a way to talk about that very well. That discussion wasn't happening. And so in Rethinking Sex, a provocation, um, <laughs> one of available the, wherever books are or, sold. Available wherever books are sold. One of the key themes here is that consent is a floor. It's like a baseline that we need to have for sex. But it can't be a ceiling um, because it's a really low bar. We have to have a higher standard for what we want from each other because consent just doesn't cover enough. And one of the things that really influenced my thinking in writing the book was this white paper by Robin West. It came out in 2020, so it's actually pretty recent, and it actually brings up a number of Me Too questions. But basically, she outlines how, and I'll just read from the paper, and hopefully this is helpful. It's now a truism that many of the legal obligations of individuals in Western systems derive not from status, like you are married and that's your status, or you're a slave and that's your status, but consent, uh, you know, a sort of contract law. We contract into our rights and responsibilities. We agree to things. And our valorization of consent in that way has a kind of legitimating function because we consent to something because we choose it. It's not only seen as valid, it's also seen as good. Um, Like consent makes whatever choice you've made, not just, you know, legal, but also kind of great for you. But there are downsides to this. And she talks about, you know, a number of them that I found really interesting. One of them is that, you know, because you consent to something, anything that happens after consent is given is sort of beyond critique. So the consent function means that you don't really have to ask questions about why the consent was given, you know, the background of the decision choice, uh, whether what you've consented to is good for an individual or, you know, good for society at large. And... When it comes to sex especially, she talks about how consent just makes these questions really difficult to discuss and in some cases can contribute to what she calls hedonic dysphoria. So when somebody, you know, consents to sex, say, they assume because of this legitimating function that the sex should be good. And society also tells us that, you know, we're sex positive, sex is great, the more sex you have, the better. But then when they have an experience that they've consented to that is really bad and conflicts with their sort of mental understanding of what consent is supposed to do, it creates a sort of split self where you don't really trust your experiences. And that is really psychologically harmful. You no longer trust yourself to understand pain or pleasure, you no longer think of yourself as sort of an agential being who can really make choices. You background your own feelings and your own agency. Because in these cases, you can either choose to question society, the understanding consent, the broad understanding of sex that you had in the past, which is kind of a big ask for a lot of people, or you can just doubt yourself. And that is what most people do. And in this paper, West argues that this is a major potential harm from consent that is not talked about enough and is often overlooked. The concept of hedonic dysphoria is just extremely important, I think, for understanding the relationship between, like, the body and the social world, right? Um, Because she's talking about the 
as Christine was kind of laying out, like, how would it feel to be told for years and years that we're now in a modern world where we can finally admit that everyone likes sex, where, in fact, we can look back at evolutionary deep history. And if you're a person of a certain level of sophistication, you can reduce everything in social life to the desire for sex. And then for all of those messages to be sent to you before you lose your virginity and then to lose your virginity or even, you know, after losing your virginity to have like asexual experience that doesn't live up to this and that in fact makes you feel like retrospectively uncomfortable like that's not something we have a vocabulary for you know that the repressive like lie back and think of england stereotype that like women don't enjoy sex like had a great deal of problems not least of which was like (laughs) falsehood but the idea that everyone enjoys sex And that if you consent to it, then it's because you enjoy it. And if you consent to it, then you must enjoy it does create this gap that is going to, you know, have problems not just for like how you perceive your own body and how connected you feel to your own body, but also to whether you see yourself as someone to be exploited or not. Like whether whether that is something that you see as demeaning or whether that's just kind of like, well, this is this is what's expected of me. I am not going to expect to get any pleasure out of this. The other reason that I think embodiment is a really strong strain that runs through this is the work that she's doing in connecting this to pregnancy Mm -hmm. and parenting and the idea that because of this ethic of consent paired with the rogue Griswold world where because there are avenues to legally terminate a pregnancy, if you carry a pregnancy to term, it's assumed to be consensual, that that then substitutes for any obligation from any other party from the other parent, but the other biological parent to the state and like all of the intermediate social spheres in between to help you take care of that child. And it's there's there's a really provocative comment in there from a law partner who was resisting giving expanded parental leave to junior associates saying, you know, at this point, having a child is just as much of a personal voluntary decision as taking a trip around the world and it should be treated the same way by your workplace. And like, (laughs) that is, that's a wild thing to say, but it's also (laughs) a fairly accurate description of the ways in which child rearing are actually considered in terms of being supported by others. But it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like that's actually a norm that we have in ethical social life, right? Like people who don't have kids and who clearly have the resources to have children are often in a weird place socially, but they're the ones who are actually following the economic logic to its it, to its logical conclusion, right? And I'm wondering what you what each of you think about that. One thing that comes out of this and that I think is a point you make in your book is is that we hold consent as a floor, but we also have other conceptions of the good. Like I think a lot of our policies on pregnancy and children come out of a conviction that creating another generation of people is a good thing. Um, and that conviction can can lead to oppressive policies, but it, I think it's also like rooted in something real. Um, and so we offer parental leave and should offer more parental leave and, and support for preschool and child care and stuff both because that's a major instrument of gaps in genders and because, like, children are good and and encouraging them and helping them is good. And that strikes me as a little bit orthogonal to the question of, like, whether one can consent to children, that you can consent to not have children and you can sort of have these choices in society that can be made on a consensual basis – but still provide supports and things that reflect some notion of the good and, and some notion of, of other things you want to promote. But but maybe I'm I'm flying a bit afield of, of your argument, Christine. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I would argue that actually we we don't yeah. necessarily have this vision of the good um, for everyone that includes, you know, the ethical good or moral good of having children, et cetera. And that, I mean, as we were just talking about in the prior segments uh, where we discussed how, yeah. you know, once there's not a crisis, we feel that, like, people should be on their own and support themselves and we don't have any responsibility to support them. I think this is a major flaw in our common understanding of, you know, <laughs> what the world should look like and what responsibilities we owe to each other. So I'm going to read another line from this piece where Robin West talks a little bit more about legitimation costs. She says, our reliance on consent rather than law as a marker of what's legal and what's not particularly in market-based liberal political structures, has a side effect of legitimating that to which consent has been given as good as well as legal 
thereby cordoning off from criticism as well as political change, three things, the value of the transaction itself, the fairness of the social world that motivated it, and the overall goodness or utility of the post-consent world it brings into being. And I find it really interesting that she continues to talk about the overall goodness, the value, the fairness. I think that one of the things that is often missing in our conversations, both political and otherwise, is this question of what is good? What does ethicality look like? What is the moral thing to do? And when we focus only on the question of consent, did someone agree to do this, whether it's getting pregnant, whether it's having sex with like a frat boy who's pressuring you, that's a question of contracts. That is a legal question in sort of the most basic sense. That's like an agreements question, a yes or no. It doesn't push us to ask these larger questions about what is good for us, what is good for our partner, what should society be looking for, what would what should we be aiming for? And I think it's when you start asking those questions that you begin to ask much larger questions about, okay, children or pregnancy, like what does the good look like there? What is what is the base requirement for that? What is that really for? Sex with another person, like what should that look like? What are we aiming for there? And it's by asking these questions about the good that you can actually, you know, bring yourself and society to a higher standard. And so by removing that conversation from the public sphere, we're really losing a lot. I would say that it's, yes, we're kind of losing the opportunity cost of elevating it, but we're also risking the erosion of things that we hadn't really anticipated were baked into mm-hmm. this, the system. I mean, a lot of reading through this West article reminds me of the kind of red families, blue families critique that was prevalent, you know, about 10 years ago as far as sexual ethics and family formation that, like, while you know, cosmopolitan liberals have been the people pushing for a legal regime that doesn't stigmatize divorce or childbearing out of wedlock or any of that. They, in practice, are often the people who are still getting married and having children within wedlock and, you know, leading fairly bourgeois moral moral lives, whereas the people who are arguably suffering from the demise of the nuclear family are people who weren't actually pushing for that regime to begin with. And that's not as much of a paradox as it seems at first glance when you think about the fact that a lot of people who who like agree with market liberalism or legal liberalism don't see social and legal life as coterminous, right? Like they want a minimalist legal system that is then filled in with more robust understandings of like, okay, in my chosen community, we're going to hold ourselves to higher standards of this. There are some things that like I will deem wrong that I'm not going to push to be made illegal. But what that means is that in a pluralist society, much less a large society, the people for whom those norms do persist as kind of just knee-jerk behavioral stuff, like no one is actually going to sit down a childless adult nearing the end of their childbearing years if they are like, you know, physically capable of childbearing and say to them, look, it is actually immoral that people not consider having a child during the fertile years to be like a central <laughs> point of their lives. But there is a certain amount of unarticulated, you know, expectation there, unarticulated stigma. Everyone who's been in a serious relationship has dealt with the when are you getting married. Everyone who's Mm -hmm. gotten married and hasn't had kids has dealt with the when are you going to have kids. And, like, the longer that this persists as just kind of a mental gesture, the harder it is to understand that that's being eroded away in other segments of society and other communities that also don't have the economic supports that would really allow them to have flourishing families. That's a great point. And I mean, this is one of the things that she says that uh, consent can cordon off from criticism, the fairness of the social world that motivated it. And so, you know, when we think about who is making these decisions, who can decide to get married, who decides to have kids, um, the red state versus blue state divide, like a lot of it is frankly about power, which in the United States is sort of equivalent with money and financial resources. And by suggesting that, like, well, you know, people who decide to have kids, they just decided and the people who don't just didn't decide to or people who decide to get married, they just consented into this agreement and the other people just didn't. That doesn't give us, you know, really space or cause to ask exactly those questions. Like, why are some people doing this and why are some people not? Is there something that's making it 
harder or not allowable for certain classes to make these decisions, whether it's, you know, care or commitment or anything else. And what should we do about that? She says it makes it oxymoronic. It kind of masks all these other questions because you can just say, well, it's a choice. It's just a personal choice. And I'm not going to ask any more questions. I want to be the person here making making a kind of a libertarian stand, at least on law, if not on on individual morality. Like I think sort of libertarianism is not super coherent as a philosophy of what individuals should do within the realm of choices that are legally allowed. But I really like your framing of consent as a floor. And I think it's good to remember in these discussions that legally that floor often isn't met. But we're having this conversation Mm. as Mississippi's abortion law is, is making it to the Supreme Court. Oklahoma is either set to pass or just passed a law like outright banning all abortions, not even doing the the six-week fig leaf. Even when it comes to things like BDSM, which comes up a lot in your book, the first time I ever heard of BDSM because I was a strange and off-putting child was in reading <laughs> a uh, a Time magazine article about it in like 2003, 2004. And it was about a family that lost their kids to CPS because they practiced consensual sadomasochism and CPS thought this was a perversion and kids had to be taken out of that home. I absolutely under I, I, I read that exact same article because yeah. I distinctly remember the idea. <laughs> like wow. Time magazine made a big point of saying people in this community don't think S&M is the proper term. They prefer BDSM. Oh, yeah. 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 No, that was an eye opening article. Um, but <laughs> But I think that was a moment where I'm like, you know, I don't know how I feel about this. I'm a 13-year-old boy. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, And secondly, like, I certainly don't want to live in a world where, to use an example that you use in your book, like, people feel pressure that they have to be into choking and sex and can't speak up about not liking that. I also don't want to live in a world where people's kids get taken away because they have non-normative sexualities. And I think sometimes in reading the Robin West article, she's kind of assuming a baseline liberalism where everyone's like, yes. well, of course mm-hmm. that, that shouldn't happen. Like, of course you shouldn't go to jail for having an abortion. Of course. Right. That, that really comes up in her discussion of sex work where she talks about, you know, liberals not seeing the potential harms of sex work and kind of blows past the fact that it's not actually illegal. Yeah. Um, right. Overwhelmingly. <laughs> that, like, with the conversation being had here is not about the poor working conditions of legal sex workers, but about the criminalization of sex work. Right. And yeah, so so just I, I wanted to put a pin in and say that, 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 that the floor doesn't always exist and, and that, that establishing it is also very important. Right. And I think one of the the points that I try and make in Rethinking Sex, and readers will have to tell me how well it comes across, <laughs> is that we have to continue to be aware that, you know, the policing of desire and policing of sex tends to fall on the most marginalized, you know, communities and the liberalization that happened after the sexual revolution and within the feminist movements was really good for a lot of people. And we do not actually want to go backwards. Like rethinking sex is not meant to be a reactionary text in any way. That said, I do think that we, you know, what I talk about in the book and what we're talking about here is, you know, being able to to talk about it, to have a discussion, a corrigible discussion about, you know, what the good looks like, what our standards should be, what societal norms we should think about. And again, you know, if consent sort of blocks all of that out into a gray area where it's never discussed again, that also leaves a lot of potential harm undiscussed. And we need to open up the conversation and be aware of those things, too. Well, I think we, we've hopefully opened up the conversation a crack today, but we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining the panel, Christine, and Rethinking Sex is available in bookstores everywhere. Christine's one of my favorite writers and thinkers. You should check it out. Thank you to Dara uh, for joining the panel uh, as usual. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Uh, Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. We will be back in your feeds next Tuesday for the start of April, which is tax month. We're going to be bringing you a bunch of hot tax policy episodes, so get excited. We will see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network.